Hi, and welcome to the Thinking Global podcast by E-International Relations, the world's leading open access website for students and scholars of international relations. My name is Kieran O'Meara, and I'm going to be your host. And today is the second part of our two-part series on women's international thought towards a new canon. If you haven't already done so, very quickly, like, share, subscribe, or follow. Just click on that little follow button. <laughs> that means you'll be able to get all the content that Thinking Global has to offer the moment that it's uploaded. Also, this is part two of a two-part series, so if you haven't already listened to part one, I would definitely go and have a listen to that before you listen to this episode. It will be the episode just before this one on whatever platform you're using. So in this series, we've been following four thinkers and their edited work, Women's International Thought, Towards a New Canon, a recent publication edited by Professor Patricia Owens, Dr. Katerina Rietzler, Professor Kimberly Hutchings, and Dr. Sarah C. Dunstan. And this book is not only fantastic, but that's confirmed by the fact that it's won a handful of awards at recent academic conferences. For example, by the International Studies Association and the British International Studies Association. Women's International Thought Towards a New Canon is the first anthology of women's international thought and explores how women transformed the practice of international relations from the early to the middle 20th century. It reveals a major distortion in current understandings of the history and theory of international relations, and this anthology offers an alternative archive of international thought. Including women as international thinkers, it demonstrates their centrality to early international relations discourses in and on the Anglo-American world order, and how they were excluded from its history and conceptualization. Encompassing 104 sections by 92 different thinkers, it covers the widest possible range of subject matter, genres, ideological and political positions, and professional contexts. Organized into 13 thematic sections, each with a substantial introductory essay, the anthology provides intellectual, political, and biographical context and original arguments showing women's significance in international thought. And it is an absolutely brilliant text. And I'm so glad to be able to bring it to you here today, the four editors of this volume. I will not be doing this alone, of course. I will be joined by my co-host, Abigail Glynn. Hi, Abby. Hi. We're going to be joined by Professor Patricia Owens, who is Professor of International Relations at the University of Oxford. Dr. Katharina Rietzler, who is Senior Lecturer in American History at the University of Sussex. Professor Kimberly Hutchings, who is Professor of Politics and International Relations at Queen Mary University of London. And Dr. Sarah C. Dunstan, who is the Leverhulme Early Career Fellow and Lecturer in the International History of Modern Human Rights at the School of Humanities at the University of Glasgow. Okay, let's do this. Okay, question five. A great deal of the discourse inside the canon of international theory deals with geopolitics and conflict. In what ways do the insights of these extracts in your anthology provide a distinct perspective on the geopolitical and war? And I think if you could, Professor Owens, I think this one would be a great one for you. <laughs> the, the question of uh, whether there's a 
a sort of distinctive women's perspective on war and geopolitics is interesting. It's not necessarily implied in, in the question, but when I first read, when you when I sort of think about that question, I, 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 I imagine that as one of the sort of implicit um, uh, sort of themes in, in there. Um, so I hope I'm not reading reading that question in, in the wrong way. I mean, I think to, today, I mean, we, in the Women in the History of International Thought Project, we've um, avoided suggesting any women's tradition of international thought, including on, on geopolitics or, or, or war, partly for the reasons Kim just outlined, that you know, there are multiple intersecting relations of power that sort of shape intellectual production and any sort of the sense in which there's a sort of women's perspective on um on, on an issue would tend to sort of privilege a certain kind of white bourgeois western um kind of way of approaching a, a subject and i mean even within that context there'd be multiple um, there wouldn't even be a tradition i think but i mean really probably what's more behind your question i think is is that you know as leading intellectuals in their time of course many of our thinkers that we highlight in the anthology uh do offer distinctive and highly original perspectives so if we just take geopolitical thinking, um, you know, if we, which uh, tradition of thought which emerged again, you know, the end, turn of the 20th century um, to legitimize the expansion of European and US empires as a kind of social Darwinist struggle and elevating this way of thinking about the relations between geography, peoples and resources, which is at the core of geopolitical thoughts. And of course, the wider context for that, uh, into, you know, the wider world, political context was a much more intense inter-imperial rivalry and anxieties about the longevity of, of global white supremacy. So earlier, I'm, and Kim just, I just mentioned like white American Ellen Churchill Semple, who, you know, one of the earliest leading thinkers in this sort of racist imperial tradition. So in the anthology, of course, we, we select to include writing from Semple, but we also include two, two other thinkers who so redeployed geopolitical languages for far more radical anti-racist purposes in the 1940s in art, during a time in which geopolitical language became much more popular and popularized. And these are, again, as Katrina pointed out, you know, Merce Tate sort of having this moment now, again, African-American Merce Tate, who Katrina's discussed, so I won't say too much about her, but also Trinidad-born um, Claudia Jones, both of whom wrote on geopolitics later than Semple, during and after World War II, and very much in the context of anti-colonial struggles. Um, Katarina again mentioned Merz Tate's biographer, Barbara D. Savage, and that we're, you know, the much anticipated biography coming out later this year. She's recently, in a couple of essays, pointed to Tate's adoption of geopolitical language, more than just the adoption of geopolitical language, she, she's, her international thinking is very much her work as a diplomatic historian was shaped by geopolitical traditions, but she used those to analyze the mechanisms of imperialism um, in a kind of critical historical way in the Asia Pacific and elsewhere, for example. So turning to Tate broadens and deepens um, uh, the most influential tradition of thought in IR in a way that the, the tradition of thought that really underpins realism, developing what what um, Barbara Savage calls a kind of anti-racist approach to, to geopolitics. I think this is highly distinctive. What's in, but what's less distinctive about Tate in that context is perhaps is that she developed these ideas inside the academy as part of a black intellectual elite at leading university centers for the study of international relations in Geneva, um, in Oxford, at Harvard, and then on to Howard University, the sort of leading um, institution of higher, higher learning for uh, uh, African-Americans. 
In contrast, Claudia Jones, you know, developed her ideas as a black left journalist and organizer. Um, born in the in the British colony of Trinidad in 1915, she's uh, as important as her better known West Indian contemporaries of George Padmore, C.L.R. James, and Eric Williams. Um, and, and what's also fascinating about Jones is that she moved in multiple spaces of empire. She was deported from the United States for her black radical Marxist ideas. She was deported to London in the late 1950s. Um, but her name appears alongside, you know, African-American uh, intellectuals like Frederick, Frederick Douglass, W.E.B. Du Bois. She's been called the Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth of the 20th century. And she achieved this standing with without any university or think tank affiliation, but through her rigorous study of the kind of Marxist Leninist science of society and through her political education in, during the Harlem Renaissance. And so she lived in Harlem and her family moved there because due to the economic depression in 1915 when she was eight years old. So she knows she was internationally renowned in her lifetime. Martin Luther King visited her home in London on his way to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. When she went to China on her last international trip, she was received by, by Chairman Mao. And she died when she died prematurely in 1964. She was laid to rest at Highgate Cemetery in, a, in the plot immediately to the left of Karl Marx. And her biographer, Carol Boyce Davies, points out this burial site literally, literally and figuratively represents Jones's historical place in the development of radical left thought in, in the 20th century. Um, so uh, uh, her geopolitical thinking is something um, that Sarah and I develop in a recent article in, in Modern Intellectual History. And you know, during World War II, Jones reoriented geopolitical analysis for her anti-colonial and Marxist strategic purposes. So between 1941 and 1943, she was writing polemical essays and articles in support of opening a second military front against fascist Germany, right? Just as in the context of the Soviet Union, not you know, um, not entering the war. And when many in the communist left opposed entry into the war and she, you know, again, influenced by black radical and Marxist traditions, much more than Tate, um, in some ways, therefore, you know, representing a much more radical and distinctive approach to geopolitical and thinking in the 1940s. She repurposed and brought together kind of geopolitical themes around resort, the, you know, the interrelationship between um, territory, resources, and peoples, and the workings of the global capitalist system and the necessity for anti-colonial struggle in this sort of anti-fascist moment. So she's, and she did this through, you know, uh, essays and articles in, you know, um, uh, Marxist organs, Marxist newspapers directed at youth. So, you know, she's a fast, I mean, Jones, I think is, is an absolutely fascinating figure and, and one of the most interesting, um, figures for the way she repurposed geopolitical themes. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much, Patricia. The next question is, well, we can imagine that editing a volume like this is very tough, uh, particularly as there are questions about who you could include and thus by virtue of this exclude. So did you have a particular criteria as to deciding which extracts were to be included and which were to be excluded? Thank you for this question. Um, I mean, this was this is a very, very difficult question to answer because it was really a long drawn out process, the selection of all these different thinkers, as, as you can, as you can see from the table of contents and perhaps also from the introduction where we uh, labor a little bit with this question, because obviously you know, we could have included other thinkers, we, we could have excluded some, um, and 
I think I would like to emphasize, and I hope uh, the others agree with me here, that uh, this was an organic process. Um, we started in 2018, I think right at the beginning of the project, we started to um, make lists of thinkers, to think very expansively um, in broad stroke ways about different categories, um, about the construction of this anthology and 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 we kind of started from there but we also wanted to make sure that um we represented uh, certain characteristics and and had certain criteria so so obviously um as the title says we wanted to include women who were um sometimes recognized in their time but also marginalized so um there there is a um there is a real duality here and i think that's that's come out in what patricia has just referred to um and these axes of marginalization can work out in quite particular and sometimes unexpected ways where we have two black authors who had very different um positionalities when it came to their access to intellectual production and to um, publishing. So we wanted to represent both um, established thinkers recognized in their time, but also those on the margin. Um, we wanted to include women who were already canonical. And this, um, this argument that this is an important thing to do uh, stems from the um, earlier edited volume that was co-edited by Patricia and myself, Women's International Thought, A New History. Um, where we made the argument that there are canonical women who are recognized in other fields and other disciplines, but who are not yet recognized in IR. And there are many examples in this anthology, um, for example, Susan Sontag, um, or um, perhaps also Margaret Mead, although I think she's becoming more recognized in the history of international thought. Um, so canonical women should also be included. And we really wanted to pay tribute to the um, really quite um, sort of resurgent scholarship on in particular black international thought. And I, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that a, a lot has happened in that particular space in the last five years or so. And at the time we were building on the work of um, of historians such as um, Keisha Blaine, but also Imal Bong Umoran. Um, and in the meantime, other important works have been published and um, Barbara Savage has already been mentioned. Um, Savage was a co-editor of an important work on intellectual histories of, of black women. Um, and more recently, we've seen work by Adam Getachew, Duncan Bell that really highlight the contribution of um, black international thought. So this was um, an important area of research um, that we wanted to acknowledge, that we wanted to represent. And again, I think you can see that in the table of contents. There were obviously also some limits. Uh, there were some parameters that, that we had, and, and I should also mention in this context that this is the result of a, a funded a grant project. Um, it's uh, a Lever Hume Trust research project. And um, we said in our application that we would focus on Anglo-American locations. There are some exceptions in the anthology where we, where we felt we could break the rules a little bit, but um, these are largely a sort of thinkers that, that worked in an Anglo-American context broadly defined. Um, obviously, once we had our categories, we also um, had to get rid of some thinkers or, or, or look for others that fit into these um, particular categories. And you know, we, we have uh, sections on religion and faith, for example, on technology. Um, and there we had to perhaps think outside of the box a little bit, but it's now 2023. Like I said, we began this work in 2018. Um, so 
it, it has developed a, a lot uh, in that time. Of course, we could have included more women. Um, that would have been absolutely no problem. And indeed, when we started um, with this project, when we embarked on this adventure, there were some skeptical voices that suggested that perhaps we wouldn't find enough um, thinkers, we wouldn't find enough subjects for our project. Far from it. <laughs> That's really an abundance, uh, an abundance of thinkers we could have included. And we make mention of that in the introduction. Um, so just to, to read out some names that are not in the anthology, but could very well be in the anthology, um, we could have included Rebecca West, for example, um, author of a really, really important book on the Balkans and also recognized in the literature. Um, Martha Reitman, Paulette Nadal, Gertrude Bell, Gwendolyn Carter, Edith Ware, Ruth Sadward, Librarian of the Council on Foreign Relations, Jesse Barnard, um, Kathleen Courtney, um, Caroline Ware, um, Ida B. Wells, a very, very important African-American thinker and journalist. Um, and indeed, we could have included a lot more journalists, I think. Um, we, we acknowledge that Th Dorothy Thompson, for example, a white American journalist, um, Secret Schultz, another one. There are many, many others we could have included. And um, perhaps uh, also women who were from the Indian subcontinent, um, who were English speaking, who were connected to British and American locations. Uh, one of them uh, is Vijaya Lakshmi Pandit. Um, she was of course uh, a very important figure in the formation of the UN, but she also gave speeches at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. Um, a very important um, Indian woman who we could have included. And perhaps another area that we could have paid more attention to um, are political figures on, on the extremes, perhaps. I mean, Claudia Jones is, is quite far to the left. Um, she's sort of communist sympathies, but we could have included more women on the right. Um, we mentioned um, Jean Kirkpatrick in the introduction as somebody that we didn't include, um, Kirkpatrick, uh, famously a neoconservative, um, starts out as a liberal, but then moves to the right. But there are many others that um, that were even further to the right that we could have included. Um, for example, Lucille Cardin Crane, um, a, a right-wing activist who opposes um, international education, international citizenship, the UN. Um, people even further to write, where we really, really come to fringe thinkers, um, where we have to deal with some very problematic um, iterations of international thinking. Um, I can mention Elizabeth Dilling or Laurel Clark van Heining here in the American context. And um, these are people who are even more to the right than say the daughters of the American revolution. And for women thinkers on the right, international questions, international institutions are a rallying point, the United Nations famously one of them. So um, this is obviously not the last word. Um, we are very excited about future research uh, in this area. And um, I think there's already research underway that uh, pays attention to, to those gaps, if we can call it that, that, that we left. But um, to answer your question more succinctly, our criteria evolved as we worked on this uh, project. And I think, um, there are areas where we uh, could have included more, but we were limited by um, by our publisher. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Rietzler. It was a brilliant answer. So we have one question that we ask everybody who comes on the podcast. In short, what is it to think globally 
for you. And if I could, I would really, really, really like to ask Professor Hutchings to answer this one. So, Professor Hutchings, what is it to think globally for you? Yes, well, um, a, a very difficult question to answer, I think, and certainly I wouldn't pretend to answer it on behalf of all of the group. Um, but if I could just maybe have a bit of a stab, I, I think clearly what it means to think globally is open to many different interpretations. Um, one way of thinking about it would be to think inclusively. Another would be to think at the level maybe of the planet, um, of trans state um, kinds of relationships and institutions perhaps as well. So there's a lot of different things or at the level of the global economy, for example. And clearly different thinkers across our anthology could be argued to be thinking uh, globally in any of those senses. I mean, I think, and I mean, I hope I'm not going too far from what others on the project would think about this, that for us, we were quite keen to keep the international as a focus, uh, even if quite broadly conceived. So we use that word rather than the um, the word uh, global. Um, but I think perhaps more, more pertinently, the, the what what our work taught us was that you need to actually understand people's thought within their spatiotemporal context and within the context of the effects that, that work will have had on various audiences across time. Um, we had to have certain parameters for inclusion and exclusion, as Katerina has said, but in some ways, of course, you know, we're missing such a lot in this story in terms of many other locations, you know, Latin America, Africa, you know, these have not, did not figure largely. Um, and indeed Europe, you know, there were a few um, continental European women in there, but not very many. And there's a massive thinking and argument and ideas there as well. But I don't think that one can gain much from reading and relating to the work of anyone from anywhere, unless you do look at it in that very clearly contextual way. And this was a project that was a historical project primarily. And I have to say the historians were very good at keeping people like me, international theorists under control when they started to make broad generalizations about things that wouldn't hold up. So I think for us to think globally is actually to think highly contextually, but also to uh, try to draw out conceptual lessons and insights that may then be of use in relation to the kinds of questions that we're still asking about international and global politics today. Okay, thank you ever so much, Professor Hutchings. This is a brilliant answer. One of the things I love about doing this podcast is that we get to ask this exact question to so many different people and you get so many different answers. I love it. <laughs> okay, Professor Owens, Dr. Rietzler, Professor Hutchings, and Dr. Dunstan, thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast to talk about your work with us. Thank you ever so, so much. It has been an absolute honor to share the airwaves with you. Such a pleasure to record. Thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I have to say, obviously I don't have any favorites at all, but this was such a brilliant one to record. 
such a pleasure absolutely brilliant thank you ever so much for listening to both parts of this two-part series on women's international thought towards a new canon if you haven't already done so go back and listen to part one last week's episode slightly longer with a couple of different questions from the same interview go and have a listen if you haven't already done so it's so good (laughs) if i may say so (laughs) and don't forget you can purchase the book that this interview is based on women's international thought towards a new canon edited by Professor Patricia Owens, Dr. Katerina Rietzler, Professor Kimberly Hutchings, and Dr. Sarah C. Dunstan, published by Cambridge University Press. And it's available not only at Cambridge University Press, but at all good book retailers. There is a link in the description box. Personally, I think it's great. I would go and purchase it immediately. It's going to be essential in the toolbox of any international theorist from now on. Absolutely. 100%. Okay, thank you ever so much for listening. I'd like to thank Abigail Glynn, obviously, for helping me with this one. (laughs) Thank you very much, Abby. I'd also like to thank the rest of the EE International Relations podcast team. That is Ismail Aden, Edward Curry, Tusharika Decker, Nigel Huckle, Daniel McDade, and Eduardo Pieroni. Thanks ever so much, guys. This podcast would not exist without you. And also, before I go, don't forget that at Thinking Global, we are part of e-international relations, the world's leading open access website for students and scholars of international relations. If you haven't already been over there, go check it out at e-ir.info. There, you'll be able to find just loads of material on international relations, be that articles, book reviews, interviews, books, and much, much, much more. So go check it out. And also, don't forget to click on that little like, share, subscribe, or follow button on whatever platform you're using. Please, please, it would mean the world to us. And I look forward to seeing you next week. So, for now, there's only one last thing to say. I've been Kieran O'Meara. I've been Abby Glenn. And together we've been... Thinking Global. Global.